Listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. The scripture reading for this morning is found in Genesis chapter 15. For those of you using your pew Bible, that will be on page 10. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. As for yourself... You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed through these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The word of the Lord. Tom gets an A, right, for those names. <laughs> Glad it was him and not me. 
this, uh, for, for those of you maybe less familiar with uh, the Bible, uh, you, you've probably heard something about uh, Israel. You know of Israel even in modern day, and you've heard something about the parting of the Red Sea and Moses. That's probably generally true in our culture. Uh, but this takes place 400 years before, and Abram is the first person. He's considered the father of all the Jews. And just a few chapters before, after the first 11 chapters of the Bible are just kind of a setting of the stage for now the romance story of God saving his people, that begins in chapter 12. So we're just a few chapters into the theme of the whole scripture. 1 through 11 lays out the the stage, you might say, and then the, the, the real actors of the plot, the drama, enter on the stage in chapter 12 with the calling of Abram. And so this event is one of the critical central events in the whole Old Testament. God's making this covenant with Abram. And you'll see there are really two episodes. The first episode that deals with the seed or his descendants. And then the second episode, beginning with verse 8, dealing with the land. But both of these promises are before him. You're going to have a, a many descendants as many as the stars, and this land is going to be yours. So we're going to use this then to look at what is faith, how does it act, what does it depend on, because this is a chapter about faith. And by the way, we're going to have four theophanies, the appearance of God in November. Uh, they're, They're entitled... Uh, marriage with God, marriage to Yahweh or with Yahweh, then late night wrestling with Yahweh, uh, Genesis 32, uh, then dinner with Yahweh, Exodus 24, uh, and then uh, finally, um, what's the last one? Yeah, going to war with Yahweh in Joshua chapter 5. So uh, all of these in kind of preparation to the final true revelation and appearance of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a little a little bit of method to my madness here. So let's pray as we... Lord, we thank you for revealing your word to us, preserving your word to us, that the Holy Spirit would show us these things done so many years ago, but for our benefit, so that we could live differently, so that we could think differently, so that we could be a different kind of people in this dark world. We thank you for the encouragement that your scripture gives us. Oh, Lord, come to us and teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we learn about uh, belief is that we trust in his promise. We trust in his promise. Uh, The question comes up about his heir, and Abram assumes at this point it's just going to have to be this servant who's going to become the heir of my household. And God says, no, it's going to be one of your own sons that's going to be your heir. And then he takes him outside and shows him the stars and says, in fact, your descendants are going to be this many. Can you count the stars? No. Then you won't be able to count your descendants. So it's not just an heir, but an heir that's going to give birth to who knows how many people, a nation of people uh, that is going to be yours. Then that critical statement in verse 6, quoted in the New Testament by Paul in two different books, Romans and Galatians, verse 6, one of the most central comments or statements in the whole of the Old Testament. 
He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, you'll notice he believed the promise. That's the point here. We trust in promise. Otherwise, we don't trust in God. There is no trust in God. Like a general trust in God, we're we're completely ignorant of his promises. We're completely ignorant of anything he's ever done, but just say, oh, I trust in God. No. You trust in the promise of God and put yourself in his hands because of what he's promised to you that he will do for you. That's the happiness of our relationship with him, that we're just always embracing promise. I still remember the 86-year-old man that taught a seminar at General Assembly who had a daily ministry in the prisons. He had this long discipleship sheet that he kept of the scripture he memorized and the passages he read and the people he witnessed to and all this. And one of those was, I cash in seven promises every day. (laughs) That's what he did. He just lived by promise. Promises sustained him and encouraged him and gave him hope and strength and energy for life every day. He was just a man of promise. That's not supposed to be an unusual person. That's every one of you. That's you and me. We're to be men and women of promise. Devoted to promise, sustained by promise, thrilled by promise, encouraged by promise, comforted by promise. Now, what's interesting about this passage is that little, that second phrase, it counted it to him as righteousness. Now, in other words, this faith was counted or considered then righteousness. Uh, righteousness means in right relationship to God. It, it means acquittal on the judgment day. You're righteous. Consider right. You're in a right relationship with God. You're not guilty before God. You're accepted before God. You are in a saved condition before God. But notice, it wasn't that Abraham did anything. He believed and that was counted as righteousness. Now, A little bit of insight, maybe, in how this word is used. In (laughs) Yeah, we listened to Porky Pig today. Leviticus 7.18. And it talks about if, if a peace offering is not eaten in the right way, it will not be credited to him. That is, the benefit will not be counted to him. It's the same word here. Or later in Leviticus 17.4, if the gift is not offered, blood guilt will be counted to that man. So you get a feel for something counted or considered put to his account or regarding him in that way. In Numbers 18, the Levites, even though they didn't harvest any food... It says that when you pay a tithe of the tithe, people give a tithe and you have this money and you pay a tithe, it will be counted as though it were the grain of the threshing hoe. So counted in that way. But here's some other ways that helps us, that help us. Judah, when he saw Tamar, he counted her a prostitute. He thought she was a prostitute. She wasn't, but that's what he considered her at the time. Genesis 38, or 1 Samuel 1, Hannah was speaking in her heart, you remember, and only her lips were moving as she prayed, and it says that the priest took her to be a drunk woman, counted her as a drunk woman, you see, considered her that. 
Or Proverbs uh, 17:28, I love this one. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. Just don't open your mouth and show it. You see, just if you stay quiet, somebody might possibly think that you're wise. They consider you wise. Or whoever blesses his neighbor, 27:14, whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice, rising early in the morning, will be counted as cursing. Okay? But you get the feel. This thing is counted as something else. It's considered. And so just believing in the promise is counted as a righteous relationship with God. And the point here, this kind of faith indicates the end of personal resources, the end of any kind of independence, and an entrusting of yourself upon God's promise. It's a trust in His faithfulness. Fundamentally, it's committing myself to His character. Putting myself in His hands because His promise convinces me of His character, His goodwill toward me, and I entrust myself to Him. And so at that point, Abram entrusted himself to God's power that my offspring really, really will be like the stars. And so he abandoned himself to his care because of that promise. So we take hold of him by his word, by promise, resting ourselves on it. And it's interesting that the promise is simply that of an offspring, and yet he's counted as righteous. And it shows that this kind of fundamental faith Whatever you're entrusting yourself with concerning God, whatever the the point of the faith, it's the same as all faith. It is that fundamental faith that takes God as his word and considers his character to be true and dependable. Now, it's interesting when Paul quotes this in Romans uh, chapter 4, he says, "...what does the Scripture say concerning faith?" Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he quotes verse 6. But then notice what he, how he puts it here. And this is uh, Romans chapter 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. The one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so Paul is using this principle of Here's Abram entrusting himself to God's promise and being counted as righteous. And he says, that's the pattern for us. We don't come to God bringing works and accomplishments. We come to God entrusting ourselves to his promise in Christ. And specifically, notice, we trust him who justifies the ungodly. We trust the one who justifies the ungodly. Obviously, we're concluding that we are the ungodly. We've come to that realization, that conviction, I'm among the ungodly, I'm not like God, I do not love Him by nature, and I have a bad problem, but I'm coming and I'm going to trust the one who will declare me righteous even though I'm ungodly. I'm going to trust the one who will count me as righteousness, as righteous and as a part of righteousness so that my faith, my helpless dependence upon God will be counted as righteousness. That's a glorious thing. 
to think that I can have that standing with God, not because of what I bring in terms of works, but because I believe His promise. You are the one who justifies the ungodly. Do you believe that promise? That He justifies the ungodly. That you don't bring good actions to win His favor. That you are at the end of your resources for righteousness and you admit fully that He and He alone can bring me into that righteous relationship. What a liberating thing this is for us. What a happy thing. And and it's amazing that God throws out that promise so that no matter what you think of yourself, can you say anything worse than you're just ungodly? Most of us kind of, well, wait a minute. You know, by nature, you're just ungodly. Kind of shrink from that. We think, oh, if, if I really was ungodly, there'd be no hope of going to heaven for me. Yep, but you trust the one who justifies the ungodly. The one who will declare that your faith will be counted as righteousness. But my faith and just helpless dependence, I'm just admitting how you will be counted as among those who are righteous if you trust in me. And Paul goes on, uses this same word of counting to give the example of David in Psalm 32, when David says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Same word. So he considers your faith righteousness, and he will not consider your sin. He will not count your sin against you, but he will count you as among the righteous. You say, but I did do nothing That's right. You just helplessly depended upon Him and in His mercy. Not because you've done anything right, anything perfectly right ever, but in His mercy, He counts you now as among the righteous. And so, Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteous. And so, our only relationship then is is dependence and then expectancy. You see, we expect. He expected that God would bring this about. To believe Him means that I admit that I cannot bring this about myself. I don't know how it can be done. I can't make a child, obviously. I've never been able to. We cannot. We're getting so, oh, there's no hope of it. But you are able to save me. You are able to bring this about. I trust that you will do it. And that's the way we come to Him. Lord, I have no resources to change my life. I have no hope of fixing my life. I have no hope of getting rid of my guilt. But you say that you're the one that justifies the ungodly. And so I come to you. But then, in the second place, there is this great covenant action. We trust in His promise and we trust in His covenant Action. You know the basic story of how the animals are split. And in uh, Jeremiah 34, 18, we read of this uh, ritual when it says, The men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. 
There was a covenant. Men passed between the two parts of the calf. The obvious statement is, may I be torn apart if I don't keep this covenant. And here is uh, this statement, I will make them like the calf that they walk between because they did not keep my covenant. We read uh, later, several hundred years later, of two kings. And here's the statement, just as this half, this calf is cut in two, so may Matiel be cut in two and may his nobles be cut in two. So it's a common way to cut a covenant. Literally, it reads that way, to cut a covenant. But the fascinating thing is this, isn't it? Abram doesn't walk between the pieces of animal. God walks between the pieces of animal. And he's, verse 7, telling him, I will bring you out of... uh, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur, and I'm going to give you this land. How will I know it? And he says, I take the covenant curse upon myself. Or I declare in the very way, and this is such a condescension upon God because, uh, of God, because literally it can't happen, right? How can God have something happen to him? And some commentators will say, well, it can't mean that because... God can't be killed. That's not the point. He's condescending to the very uh, covenant that's used. And he's saying that I take upon myself this responsibility. May I be torn apart. May I cease to be God, in a sense, if I don't keep this covenant. Really, it's almost as to say... I would cease to be God if I don't keep this covenant because I keep covenant. I keep my promise. I never lie. I always follow through. And so here is God saying, you want a sign? Here's the sign. He himself passes through. And and of course, the fire pot and the flaming torch is a picture of God later and as he was the fire by night and the cloud by day leading Israel. And so this was written, of course, at the time of Israel, after they had come out of Egypt, they're reading this passage and seeing this is, this is God, the God that we see before us. And this God passed between the animals. This God, this Yahweh, this glorious God that made the mountains shake He's the one that passed between the animals. That's what must be so striking for them, that their Yahweh making such a dramatic promise to Abraham, pledging himself in the most radical way possible, signing it in his own blood, so to speak. This one of the most one of the most momentous events in the whole Old Testament. This promise determines the whole future of Israel and really determines the incubation of the Messiah and the preparation for Messiah himself to be born in Israel. And so you and I need to see that this promise that is made to Abram and ultimately to his descendants is finally a promise to us that he would bring Messiah on the scene, that he would preserve, he would create and preserve Israel and bring forth Messiah. 
And the other interesting thing for us is that the promise of the land becomes the promise of the whole world to God's people. And it even says in Romans chapter 4 verse 11 that Abraham received the promise of the world. And so the Lord Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. And we hear of the new heavens and the new earth that are formed for God's people. God promised right here, right here, that He would give us the new heavens and the new earth ultimately. And He promised it in such a dramatic way. May I be torn apart if I do not bring my people to that final day of resurrection and glory and freedom and wipe every tear away from their eye. That's the ultimate meaning of this promise to us. But then, of course, as we are looking at the New Testament covenant, it makes us think of the covenant that Christ made, the new covenant. Um, In the new covenant, He literally took the curse due to us on Himself. As, as amazing as it, as it is that God would commit himself and, self and say, may I be torn apart if I do not do this for you. Here is God in the person of Jesus Christ saying, I will actually bear the curse in your place. 1 Peter 2.24, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. And it shows, as Paul says in Romans 3, that all the passing over of sin up to the point of Christ, all the forgiveness that people enjoyed, all the relationship that they had, and the intimacy with God, and the joy in fellowship with God, it was all dependent upon God ultimately bearing the curse of sin upon Himself. He reveals this in Romans 3, saying, this is why it was okay for God to allow relationship and fellowship and pass over sins and give people all of these benefits because finally He was going to bear the punishment for people's sins. So all that forgiveness, all of that not counting iniquity would be possible only because God Himself would take the curse due to man. It's amazing to think, oh, you weren't just passing over sin. We didn't enjoy your fellowship just because you had to die for us to enjoy that. So as Israel looked back in awe of this covenant-making God, we and the Lord's Supper look back in awe at our covenant-making God, our Savior. It's the new covenant in His blood. It wasn't the statement, may I be torn apart. It was the declaration, I will be torn apart. I am torn apart for you. I am crucified for you. That's the declaration in Christ. It shows, of course, the seriousness of sin. It shows that God would not pass over sin. It had to be dealt with, but it shows it has been dealt with in Christ. Sin must be taken seriously. We cannot deal lightly with it because it 
bore down upon Christ. I can never be friends with that which caused my Savior's pain. But in the same breath, I have to say, but I can be free of sin. I can be free of sin's guilt and condemnation because He truly bore the wrath of the Father for me. That is the covenant. That is the promise. And so you see the seriousness of God's promise in Abram. And of course, he means for that promise to be taken seriously, to be believed. He wants us to, to, he wants Abram to believe, I will do you good. I will do your descendants good. You trust me. You put yourself completely under my care. I am faithful and trustworthy. All the more to us is that message. That the Lord Jesus is saying, I marry myself to you, O my people. It says in Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And it gets personal when Paul says in Galatians 2, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so this Lord's Supper is a covenant celebration of our Lord's sacrifice for us. It's a celebration of how he created this relationship between us, how He did everything necessary so that He can embrace us and we can embrace Him. It's a celebration of the righteousness that we have with Him. And the fact that it is a meal, brothers and sisters, tells us there's intimacy and fellowship, there's peace, there's no condemnation. We're sitting down at the dinner table with God. We're sitting down at the table because there's nothing against us. Because He has borne the curse for our sake. We're celebrating the relationship we have with Him purchased at such a price. So we believe His promise and all the more we believe it because of the covenant action of God to create this relationship through bearing the curse for us. Let us pray. Lord, we honor You and praise You that... You would do what you did with Abram, promising his descendants, promising the land, and sealing that promise, Lord, by cutting this covenant, by demonstrating your pledge, your faithfulness, that you would do him good. Lord, all the more. We praise you for your promise that you justify the ungodly. And we can have assurance that you would do that because you've borne the wrath due to the ungodly. You bore our sins, the sins, no matter how grievous, no matter how horrible and deep and protracted and mean-spirited our sins are, you bore the punishment for sin. And therefore, when we come to you, as Paul says, you can be just because you've truly dealt with sin. And at the same time, you can declare us righteous. You are perfectly fair and righteous, even to declare us ungodly people as righteous. We praise you for such grace. We praise you for such a desire to bring us into fellowship with yourself. We thank you that you want us to experience liberty, freedom, 
clean conscience, joy, comfort, encouragement, hope. You want us to know these things. That's why you've accomplished this for us. To bring us into the joy of a relationship with such a God who would do such things for His people. O Lord, enlarge our hearts to embrace You. Take away the sin of indifference, of boredom. Take away the the sin of hard-heartedness. And open up our hearts, Lord, to be thrilled and amazed at the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask You to do this for Your name's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. My Lord, my life, my light Oh, come with blissful rain Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away? Then shall my soul with rapture trace